Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto and Christopher Hurtado. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss. But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. And today we're going to talk about death. Now, what do I mean by death? I mean the remembrance of death, the tradition known in Latin as memento mori. It goes all the way back to at least Socrates, and it's part of very much part of the Christian tradition, and there are some other things we'll bring in from Stoicism, and especially from the Psalms. So let's talk about death. So what do we think of when we think of death in LDS theology. We, we tend to, and I'm asking that rhetorically, we tend to look at it just as another stepping stone, right? It's, it's the separation of the spirit from the body. But how we live our lives with respect to what we know is coming, it, it's, it's kind of odd, right? Like whether we're LDS or not, a perspective that's proper about death and its place as part of the experience of life is kind of important to have, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, we say it's not the end, and there, we're going to have another life. And if we really, if we weren't human, put it that way, and we didn't actually, in some sense, I'll say fear death, then we might just miss out on life because we're not worried about we're going to die because we're not going to die. Or we're going to die, but then we're going to live on. But in a sense, we actually do. Again, we're human. We're, we're aware of our mortality, even though we usually try to not to, we try not to think about it. And that's where we want to challenge listeners today with, with this exercise of remembering death. But, and, and we try to, and in some sense, to pretend that we're not going to die, even though we know we are. And this is another way that we can miss out on life, because if we don't realize that we're, if we're not keeping in mind that we're going to die, then we might not live fully. Right. And, you know, the other thing to go along with that is I think that a lot of times it's not so much that we put death out of our minds actively. We don't, we don't try not to think about it. It's just that we ignore it for the most part until it confronts us, right? And then we have all these feelings about it, and it causes all this kind of psychological distress because we're in the moment with death rather than taking advantage of this sort of stoic idea to remember death more often so that when it does finally confront us, it's not such a shock. Yeah, that's a really good point, Riley. We, we're not necessarily avoiding thinking about death but we're also not making it a point to think about death. We're not going out of our way. And there, and this is an exercise. It's a spiritual exercise. When you mention the Stoics, ancient philosophy, like Stoicism, that's, that's one ancient philosophy, is like religion is today. 
You know, so today people think of philosophy as a waste of time, ivory tower cogitating, and for the most part, it actually has become that in academia. But a real philosopher, and the way philosophy was in antiquity, is just someone who's thinking about, I was going to say life, but I could I could just as easily say death. You know, Socrates said that the point of philosophy was to prepare to die. Yeah, Plato likewise, those who practice philosophy in the right way are in training for dying and they fear death least of all men. Yeah, that's Socrates. And, you know, that's Plato putting his ideas in the mouth of Socrates. Yeah. So I like the way that Seneca puts this. He says, let, let us prepare our minds as if we'd come to the very end of life. Let us postpone nothing. Let us balance life's books each day. The one who puts the finishing touches on their life each day is never short of time. So that kind of and calls to mind that idea of constant remembrance of how important it is to not only think of death, but in the context of what it means for your life. Absolutely. That's yeah, such a great quote. And Seneca actually made it a point. You know, when he would go to bed, he would say, I may not wake up in the morning. And when he would get up in the morning, he, may, he would say to himself, that may have been the last time I, I may not sleep again. He would say, I may not sleep again. And the Stoics, you know, Marcus Aurelius talk, talks about kissing your kids goodnight and thinking to yourself, they may not wake up in the morning. You could just as easily think of it in terms of the la every time you talk to someone, maybe the last time you talk to them, whether you're seeing your your grandparents or you're just kissing your wife goodbye, goodbye in the morning to go to work or or your kids. And in fact, you know, that reminds me of something that I hadn't thought of to, to bring up, but that really fits in here. And that is this idea, especially now that we've moved away from family. Many of us have, right? That's sort of the, the trend in society. This idea of contemplating death, you can apply this to others too. So there's this idea that we have a, we have a sense that we're going to die and that's going to be, you know, 70, 80 years maybe 90, maybe 100, 110 max, something like that, right? So there's, you have, and you can look at the average mortality rate according to your your gender and whatever other, maybe what country you live in, things like this. But if you have that in mind, if you if you think about that, you can actually, and, and you know that you only see, for example, your parents once a year, maybe twice a year, Christmas, Thanksgiving, whatever the case may be, then you can actually take a moment and realize, contemplate, the fact that you will that you only have so many times left to see them total and that might make a difference in how you spend your time with them you might even make an extra trip that's such a great point i think you brought that up to me about a year ago we were talking late one night and and you you suggested it was a blog that someone had put together and i can't remember the guy's name but i i went down that rabbit hole for a while of actually doing the math like calculating the number of you know, minutes or hours or days, whatever the case may be, that you will spend with the the people that you love the most. Like actually do the math. How much have you seen your parents, like for my parents, they live in, in a neighboring state, but not in my state, right? So they live in Colorado. I live in Utah. I see them, let's call it three times a year for maybe two to three days at a time. If I'm lucky, we get maybe something extended four to five days. Say we go on a camping trip or something. So let's just say round numbers, 10 times, 10 days a year. My dad is, he just turned 72 and my mom's 66. And you just said, you know, average humans, you know, it's 80, 90 years, whatever. Okay. It's less, but whatever it is, it's 87, whatever, you know, whatever that number is, 78, who knows. 
but uh, let's let's give my each of my parents uh, on average together, you know, let's let's call it a dozen more years. I hope it's much more, but let's just say it's a dozen more years. Twelve times ten, 120 days. I got 120 days left with my parents. That is something to think about. Yeah, what are you going to do with those? And by the way, you don't actually know you have that many days I with don't. them, right? Right. But it's something to think about. You may not have that many days with your children. We don't know. We don't know when death comes. Yeah, so it definitely is. Yeah, it's definitely something to think about. And that's, that's the point of this conversation, really. It's, it's awareness. It, that's exactly it, right? It's, it's, you can call your mind in many ways to awareness, like, like I just did with the math, right? Although I don't know how many days. If I'm just right. playing the averages game, I've got 120 days. That's, that's one-third exactly. of a year with my parents. And by the way, if they make it past 120 days, you can rejoice with every passing day beyond that, the same way that you could now, right? Right. And you know, by the way, we're human, and so we forget things. And so you could do that exercise today, or maybe you did it a year ago, and maybe you could report, rather, you know, what, have you kept that in mind? I mean, we may need to actually think about this more often than once a year. You're going to think about it when you see your parents. Uh, I don't know if you have a tradition of seeing them on Christmas or Thanksgiving or what have you. You'll certainly think of it then, but is this something we should keep before us maybe every day? I think it is. Yeah, and there's ways you can tap into this. Um, you know, you might get more creative, let's say. It may not be practical for you. Say your parent lives across the country, you know, or your child lives across the country, for instance. It may not be practical for you to try to increase the number of days you see them. Maybe you just can't pull it off. But what you could do is you could call them more often. You could write them a letter. You know, it's, it's just the remembrance, the awareness that's really important, right? And then what mm -hmm. you do with that. By the way, I'd like to mention the name of the article that, that you mentioned. It's called The Tail End. Wait, but why? Is the blog. It's waitbutwhy.com, and the article's The Tail End. And you can really, I mean, and I think the context where I first saw it was actually in terms of how many books could you read, meaning before you die. I mean, it's just like take, take however many, what the average lifespan is, and realize that at the rate you're reading right now, you would only read X books. And if you wanted to have a life where you read more books, if that's important to you, then you have to step up your game. And you can actually do the math on this stuff and get, you know, get down into the, into the details, into the nitty-gritty of the question of how many books could I actually read. My son came up to me the other day. He says, Dad, how many books are on each book uh, shelf? Meaning each shelf on each case. Uh, average of 25, 30 books, something like that. Okay, and you're reading a couple hundred pages a day. Okay, you could read this many pa uh, books. You know, he did that. And he's pretty quick in doing these things in his head. But it's the same idea, right? Well, what it called to mind for me was not only quantity, but also quality. Yes. You know, if you, let's say you go ahead and do the math and you figure out the quantity, roughly speaking. Like you could do this, roughly speaking, like you said, for books, okay? I read, let's say, uh, last year I read, I don't know, maybe 40 or 50 books. If I did that every year for the next, let's say, 40 years, and, and I lived until I was 85, you know, that would, that would be a pretty good number of books. And maybe it would be difficult for me in that respect to say, well, okay, I'm going to put these in priority order. I definitely want to read this book, and I definitely want to read this book, and so forth. But if, if you are doing this in terms of days with your parents, 
or with your child. You'd be less thinking about quantity than you would about quality. At least I, I would think you would do this exercise. You would say, okay, I've got 120 days left with my, with my parents, and I don't even know this, as you pointed out. Let's say I have less than that, but I know that it's limited. So knowing that the number of days is limited, what's the most important thing I want to do with my child or with my parents before those days run out? And then you start thinking about quality. So for instance, I'm, I'm taking a vacation with my parents uh, in about a week and a half. We're going to go to Mexico and make it kind of a little mini family reunion, my whole uh, nuclear family and then my, my extended family. And so, um, you know, that's, that's 10 days in Mexico that are, we're going to be creating some awesome lasting memories. And to me, that's quality over just the quantity. Right. We can think of this in terms of our children too, right? Because if you, they're going to move away too, right? So wherever you are, depending on how old your kids are, you may have spent the greater quantity of the time that you will ever have with them total already without even realizing it, without even thinking about it. And so that's when I say when this is about awareness, that's what we mean by contemplation. Contemplate death. Remember death. Memento mori. Remember you're going to die. And so are the people you love. That's part of the reality of our life. And if we do this, then we might actually make the most out of the time that we do have. And that's quantity, both quantity and quality. Right. So when we're talking about memento mori, what, what we're talking about is not some macabre dwelling on, you know, your, your inevitable death. We don't want to dwell on it from a negative uh, point of view. We really want to look at it as from the perspective of life and the opportunity that we have to live a fuller life. And that's really what I think the Stoics are trying to get at. Seneca says life it is thanks to death that I hold thee so dear. So he's putting life in the context of death and death in the context of life. But really the focus is on life and how to make it more fruitful. Yeah, even to the point of this could include even morality, right? Even a sense of living a good life in a moral sense. Epictetus says, keep death and exile before your eyes each day along with everything that seems terrible, by doing so, you'll never have a base thought, nor will you have excessive desire. So even a moral life becomes more of a reality when we, when we keep in mind that we're going to die. Marcus Aurelius, who learned his Stoicism by reading Epictetus, also wrote, You could leave life right now. Let that determine what you do and say, and think. So there it is again, this idea that if you remember that you could die at any moment, that it might actually improve your life, morally speaking. I love that. And, you know, another aspect of what Marcus Aurelius said uh, is that it is not death that a man should fear, but rather he should fear never beginning to live. So what he's doing there is he's connecting fear and death to the fear of never beginning to live. And really, the one that we have control over is the latter, not the former. And I wasn't sure how to weave this in, but there's this scripture from Mosiah 15.8, and it says, And thus God breaketh the bands of death, having gained the victory over death, giving the Son power to make intercession for the children of men. And I wondered about, like, how, how, 
it's almost like a, the opposite is what it seems to be pointing out to me. But now I think as I'm reading it again, I'm, I'm kind of getting this. And it connects to what Marcus Aurelius is saying. And thus God breaketh the bands of death. Well, what are the bands of death? It's the fear of death that holds us back. The bands of death, the, the bondage that, that, and the control that death has over us is the fear that it puts in us. When we know that death is coming, and so we live accordingly, we, we sort of break through those bands of death. We break through the fear, and we gain the victory over death. That's what happened with the Savior. He wasn't just doing some grand act on our behalf, which he was, of course, but that wasn't all he was doing. He was also pointing to himself as an example of how to break through, live your life every day to the fullest because you know that eventually death will come and when it does you can you can know that you conquered it you 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 overcame the bands or the fear of death what do you think about that interpretation yes yes and there's and there's in that you read there's freedom in that right i was just about to share i i thought to share a quote before you mentioned the scripture which now dovetails dovetails very nicely with the scripture you read and this is from Michel de Montaigne, who's often called Montaigne in English, the man who gave us the essay from the French essaye to attempt. There was, he was the first blogger, we could say, the first essayist. He says, to practice death is to practice freedom. A man who has learned how to die has unlearned how to be a slave. Because we are slaves to our fears. Ooh, I love the idea of learning how to die without yes. actually dying. What does that mean? Yeah, you know, Michel de Montaigne himself had a, a near-death experience, and that, and he was he was an avid reader of the Stoics, but he was out riding horse uh, on on horseback with his friends, and I think he ran into something. He hit his head. At any at any rate, he was uh, unhorsed, and whether he hit his head before or after he was unhorsed, he hit his head, and they had to drag him home. And it was that near-death experience that caused him. And and we've heard this. You've met people, Riley. I've met people that have had near-death experiences that, that bring them face-to-face -face with death and that, that has brought them to an awareness of exactly what we're trying to bring to your awareness here without having to have that experience. Don't wait for death to, to, sh to show up, right? It may be too late. What if you don't have a near-death experience? What if you have a death experience? Then it's too late, right? I've always loved this. Um, this quote from Jesus at the just at the conclusion of the of the Beatitudes, and he gives this during his Sermon on the Mount, where he says, "Take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof." And I always thought what he was referencing there was sort of like the anxiety that we all experience when we dwell on what might happen to us in a negative sense, like, well, this could happen or that could happen. And essentially what he's trying to say there is when you dwell on what might happen, you forget what is happening. So, so leave that stuff to, to tomorrow, you know, leave the thoughts of tomorrow to tomorrow because the tomorrow is going to be what it's going to be. And there may be evil in, in tomorrow, but you have no control over that. What you do have control over is the moment you're living in right now. And maybe not even control, but you have awareness of. And you can live in that moment. 
Yeah, you know, in some sense that seems contradictory to the to what we've been saying, and yet, paradoxically, if if we're li- if we're aware of death, then it makes us more present, right? This is the idea to be present. That's what that's what we're talking about. And go back to that phrase again that you that you read prior about learning how to die. Well, the, there's there's Socrates who's saying that you know to to do philosophy is to learn how to die. There's there's another quote I have here from Socrates where he says that philosophy is about nothing else but dying and being dead. He actually he actually said that. And but you may be referring to the Montaigne quote, right? To practice death is to practice freedom. A man who has learned how to die has unlearned how to be a slave. I just want to sit with that and really think about it. A man who has learned how to how, who, a man who has learned how to die say it again has unlearned how to be a slave has unlearned how to be a slave it's almost as if someone who is caught up in obsessing about death is a slave to their to their fears but he's saying it's not that you don't think about it. You have to you have to think about it. You have to learn what it means to die well, perhaps. But you don't want to live in fear of it. Am I interpreting that right? I think that's a valid interpretation. It may not be the only one, but it certainly is a valid interpretation. The first thing that came to my mind when I read it, when it says you've unlearned how to be a slave, what would you be a slave to? The first thing that came to my mind is the same thing you said, your fear. And so if you've learned how to die, if you've actually dealt with that, if you've come to terms, I mean, really come to terms with the idea that you're going to die, it now holds no power over you in a sense. And it's not just because you think you're going to have an afterlife, with which Montaigne may or may not have had, you know, shared that idea. It's thought that he may have been very much Epicurean, even though we're dealing with Stoic ideas here. And so... He may not have, not have thought that, but even if you have that idea that you're going to live again, there's still this life, and there's still, and you know, we, we teach, our, our religion teaches us, the Prophet Joseph Smith taught us that life is about happiness, and you, we very much get the sense from the Prophet Joseph Smith that this is not just about the next life, that we can be happy here and now. And how do we do that? This is part of it. Part of the answer is we have to be present to the reality of death and therefore present to, how, to this question of how to live. And in fact, that's what Michel de Montaigne's essays are all about. They're, they're about how to live. They're these attempts. Again, essaye means to try. So he's making these attempts. He's writing these attempts of answering these questions about how to live. There's a lot to think about here, and I, I think one could spend a good amount of time just thinking about the different aspects of death. I, I still am just I'm hung up on this phrase about learning how to die, because there's a difference between the realization that we die and learning how to die. That's a different idea. Like, how does one learn how to die? What does that mean? And this is the project of the philosophers, and it's the project of religion. Because again, ancient philosophy is akin to religion today. Ancient religion was closer to something like um, 
patriotic duty or something like that today. So whether whether you're thinking in terms of Stoicism or whether you're thinking in terms of Mormonism or being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you're talking about how to live. And one of the aspects of answering that question and getting it right is to remember the, the finitude of your life. And that not only the finitude, but the precarious nature of life. Life could end at any moment. And we've talked about the average lifespan, and there are those who live longer than the average lifespan, and there are those who are cut down in their prime. There are those who are cut down in their youth. And we have hinted at the answer to what comes next, and that's fine. But what about here? What about now? Our, our religion very much teaches us that it's not all about the next life. We're here for an actual experience of living, and of living a life that, that can be a happy life. It isn't always the case, right? There, there's a sense in which life has its pain, but again, we're taught that that pain is part of what makes the joy possible. That we wouldn't know the one without the other. So slowly in this conversation, I'm coming to the realization that there's the one of the opposite ideas of what we're talking about might be consequentialism. And fear, I think, is innately linked to this idea of being a consequentialist because we're trying to avoid discomfort and pain and all of these things. And so our actions will sometimes lead us to try to minimize pain and discomfort and, you know, some of these not very pleasant experiences or consequences for actions. Right. And that was the Epicurean project, right? right. Is to avoid pain and seek pleasure, not in the, in the hedonistic sense of which the Epicureans are accused, but yes, to seek pleasure and in, in the, the higher pleasures of the mind, not, not the pleasures of the flesh necessarily. But still, it's, it's consequentialist, right? Yeah, it, it, the reason I'm reminded of this is because I had a, a conversation with a friend of mine who is, is struggling with some impending consequences that he doesn't believe you know, he uh, earned. He didn't, uh, he didn't commit these acts that he's being accused of. And I, I didn't have a whole lot of comfort for him other than to say you know, that what you can control is your actions with respect to how this whole scenario plays out. And the most important thing at this moment would be for you to just be truthful and transparent and maintain a sense of virtue with respect to how all this goes down. Because then even if you end up sitting in a jail cell and you've been truthful and transparent, you can, you can avoid some of the pain of cognitive dissonance of the discord within yourself that arises from not being completely true to yourself. And so in a sense, we can't control all of, all of these things that happen to us. Um, and, and maybe we shouldn't try to, we should aim at a higher ideal. I think that's what the Stoics are getting at is that you really, you can't control what you can't control, but you can live well. You can learn how to die well if that's the ultimate fate. Um, and sometimes that is completely unavoidable. 
well, in this case with death, it, it is completely unavoidable. But at least you can have lived a life that, you know, you might be proud of. Well, I'm going to point us to another scripture, and we'll see where this takes us. In DNC 122.9, the Lord, I think here, is speaking to Joseph Smith, and he says, Thy days are known, and thy years shall not be numbered less. Therefore, fear not what man can do, for God shall be with you forever and ever. And I think maybe what's going on here is the Lord is trying to instill in Joseph a sense of courage um, and conviction to do the things that are right and to lay aside some of that fear we talked about. That was beautiful, Riley. Would you read that again from Fear Not? Fear not what man can do, for God shall be with you forever and ever. That really speaks to me. That reminds me of the 23rd Psalm. This is one that as a Lutheran boy, I recited to myself. Maybe even in in moments of fear, you know, when you have nightmares, when you see shadows in your bedroom, when you're a little boy, in those moments. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth beside me. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth o'er. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I absolutely love that. I was, uh, I'm reminded of my senior year of high school, and I was in Judith McConkie's art history class. And, you know, her art history class is what really put the love of art within me. Uh, I, I loved every moment of it. It was awesome. Although I will admit that we skipped a couple times to go to uh, D's for a, a lumberjack breakfast with some friends, but uh, <laughs> that was, it was reluctant because I loved her class. And I hope if someday she hears this, she knows how much I appreciated her teaching. But um, we didn't just stare at paintings and architecture and sculpture, but she really taught us to appreciate art as art. And so uh, one of the things we did is she selected some Bible verses that were artistic to her. And this was one of them. And she asked us to commit this to memory. And so I've always loved the 23rd Psalm. And I've, I've tried to really spend some time in Lectio Divina with it and contemplate some of the meanings of these verses. And one of the things that I've, I've come to realize that I think is, is possibly what's being conveyed in this scripture is this is the Lord actually comforting someone who's going into the valley of the shadow of death. I mean, obviously there's the fourth verse where it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. But go back to verse 1 and 2. The Lord is my shepherd. What does a shepherd do? A shepherd leads someone to safety and, um, and comfort and shelter. I shall not want. Well, when you're in your in your twilight of living years, there's nothing more that you want. You're, you're done with desire. Verse 2, He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. 
Can you imagine approaching whatever your vision of heaven is? What, what might that look like? And it, it seems to me that this might be an apt description. He restoreth my soul. And, you know, from an LDS theological perspective, you could look at restoring the soul as bringing the spirit and the body back together. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Anyway, it's almost a beautiful description of, of death, not as some event to be feared, but for someone who's tried to live an upstanding, moral, virtuous life, maybe just a transition into something very comfortable and peaceful and loving in the presence of God. Yeah, and we can read the same verses and we can think in terms of walking through the valley of the shadow of death as the journey of our life. And we need not fear evil because the Lord is with us and his rod and staff comfort us and he's He's, he's presented, a, he's prepared a table before us. Um, he's anointing our heads with oil, our cup is running over. In a sense, nothing's wrong. And he's with us. And those, you know, those that be with us are greater than those that be against us because, let's face it, God is greatest of all. And so there's a sense in which we can find rest for our souls and, and, and we can find those green pastures and there's still waters here now, right? So there's both senses. Yeah, we talked about in our last episode a little bit about what righteousness means, and we framed it as right relationship with God. And I, I like the imagery if you replace righteousness with right relationship in verse 3. says again, He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of right relationship for his namesake. And again, it points to this idea that from a Stoic perspective, the one thing we can control is, is how we live. Maybe not what happens to us during our lives, the consequences and whatnot, but we can have some control over how we live. How we respond to those circumstances. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, things are going to be hard, and that's fine. Um, and sometimes things will be easy, and, and that's not always fine. <laughs> sometimes that leads us into a life of of comfort and not being aware of perhaps the struggles or the mournings of others. But if we are in right relationship with our Creator... And with our fellow man. It, that's exactly right. Um, and, and really, the, as, again, the great commandment is one and the same, right? It's love God and love your neighbor. So being in, in respect to our neighbors as we would in respect to God in that right relationship is, is the mark of a, a virtuous life. And one where you don't, you know, you don't fear death because again, you can have a sense that I I lived how I wanted to live. Yeah, I'm going to go back to art, Riley. Uh, as as we've mentioned before, you and I are both um, we both love art. You and I both love art, and we've both studied art history and continue to to learn about art and to enjoy it and, and experience it. And there's contemplation in that too. We've, that's something we've talked about in a previous episode. Wasn't there that we have an episode? What is contemplation, right? And I think we we talked about art and experiencing art as one of the contemplative practices, one of the possibilities of contemplative practice. And there's something that fits in here in this conversation because there's this whole genre of paintings from the 17th century called vanitas, where you actually have things like the like uh, Philippe de Champagne's still life with a skull 
and you have these symbols, right? The tulip as a symbol of life, the skull as a symbol of death, the hourglass symbolizing time, and so many paintings of well, even in the in the Christian tradition, right? Paintings of Saint Jerome who made the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible from which we get our earliest English translations, sitting at his desk, you know, sitting at a writing table with, you know, parchment paper and and pen or stylus or whatever and and he's got this skull on his desk. And the same we see with Saint Augustine. He's again writing and he's got the skull on his desk and this is a very and if people may have seen this and they don't understand what it means. And that's what this is. This is a reminder. This is memento mori, a reminder of death. You know, there's a there's a website called Daily Stoic. They actually sell coins. Just like when I was a Boy Scout, I had my good turn coin, this coin that I carried in my pocket that would remind me to do a good uh, turn daily. And that once I had done that, I could transfer the coin to another pocket, right? From one pocket to the other. They sell these coins that, that have, you know, a skull on them that say memento mori. And the idea is when you would reach in your pocket, you would feel this coin and you would remember, right? This, it's this reminder. I have a, a, a daily practice that's a, a memento mori practice myself, Riley. That's every morning when I get on the scale, first thing in the morning, I have this body, body composition scale. And I get on it every morning and it tells me you weigh this much and your weight has gone up by this much or down by this much. And that changes, that fluctuates day by day. And you have this much of water in you and this much of muscle mass. And there's one thing that doesn't change from day to day, at least not so far. In my experience, every day I find out that ultimately seven pounds of bones, that's what I am, seven pounds of bones. And it reminds me of this ancient Egyptian practice of when there's a party and Michel de Montaigne, he liked this idea that you would bring out a skeleton. And the idea is, look, live now because this is what you're going to look like when you're dead. And that's maybe not the idea of a resurrected body, but I think the image is still useful, right? Yeah, I think so. And you mentioned, you know, St. Augustine and St. Jerome with these skulls. You know, the, the Catholic dogma is that all all body parts and bones and whatnot are to be buried. You're not supposed to keep any of those, right? So let's remove, like you said, I don't think most people look at those paintings and really think about what's being communicated there. Let's assume that that is just a symbolic device, an artistic device that's being meant to teach a lesson. And let's let's assume again, for, for just for the sake of discussion, that St. Jerome didn't have a skull or St. Augustine didn't have a skull that they used to contemplate. What what is being communicated there is the importance of just thinking on it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I don't know that he had a skull on his desk. Right. But the idea is, here's the symbol of a reminder of death. And we, we spoke a little bit about this pre-show where you and I have both been to Rome. And I asked if you'd been to the catacombs. And if anyone, you know, you can look this up, go Google the catacombs in Rome or whatever, and you'll see just rows and rows of underground crypts where there's skulls and, you know, femurs and and hip bones and pelvis, whatever, all kinds of bones organized very, almost categorically. And it's almost as if what's being communicated is that these bones don't represent humans. I mean, they're just, they're just bones. And maybe there's there's this an eternal life that's that's beyond this, and we don't have to think about these bones. 
but why are they why are they organized the way they are? It's almost as if someone wants to wants you to see them this way. And and what does that what does that do to see rows and rows and rows of skulls? I remember I went to one catacomb that's out on the Oppian Way, and I wish I could remember the name of it. But at one time, Christians used to worship underground there because they were being persecuted, and they turned this what was really an underground crypt into a place of worship. There was even a chapel underground, you know, 30 feet or 50 feet or whatever. You had to take an elevator to go down into these catacombs. And it's just interesting that these these early saints were living amongst death at all times. They were seeing it every single day. Uh, in their worship, anytime they had to go into hiding, perhaps they lived under there. I, I really don't know enough about the history to speak to that, but the reminder was always in front of them that death is right around the corner. And, you know, in the Christian tradition, we have this idea of the second coming, and it's complicated for us. In every generation, we always think the Savior's coming, like, in our generation. And I wonder if this isn't out of a fear of our own mortality, that we almost want to be saved from whatever kind of death we have to face. What do you think about that, Christopher? Well, you know, before I answer the question about about us, I want to go back to the Romans a minute, because, yeah, living under Roman rule, you might be afraid of death. And it's interesting because, and the reason is because, of course, we know that the Christians were persecuted by the Romans. We also know that the idea of the Pax Romana was of the Roman peace, as they called it, was this idea that they would conquer the whole world and thereby everyone would be Roman and there would be no more no more conflict between nations because there would only be one nation, right? So they would go to you and they would say, confess that Caesar is Lord and now you're Roman and you, we, we actually charge you taxes and use that to go do this to more people or die. That was your other option. And so in, many times the Roman generals did conquer. And when they came back to Rome as victors and they had, they had these military parades. And it's interesting to note that while the, the, uh, the general, that while the Roman general was being paraded through Rome, with all of his his prisoners of wars, slaves, what have you, all these symbols and signs and witnesses of his of his conquests, that he had someone whose job it was to stand there next to him on his chariot and to whisper into his ear, "Remember, you're mortal." Isn't that interesting? Does that have anything to do, you think, with Romans Rome's success? Militarily speaking? Well, sure. I mean, on the one hand, Stoicism is, in some sense, the religion of the Romans. Of course, there's there's religion, as what they would call religion, is something more like, again, what we would call patriotism, in some sense. At least what passes for patriotism, this idea of of allegiance to the state. And the religion was about the relationship of man and the state, whereas their their philosophy which is what informs how they should live their lives, which is what we think of today as religion, that was predominantly Stoicism. And Stoicism and and Christianity have a lot of commonalities, actually, and they coexisted in in that milieu at that time. 
So there's that, right? But it's also, yeah, why? imagine you've conquered and now you've come home and everybody is, is just seeing you as this immortal victor, right? And you have to be reminded, you're not immortal. You're going to die. You didn't die this time, but you're still going to die. Yeah, so the reason I asked that question is because it seems as if having that reminder might push that conquering general back out into more conquest. It's almost like you have you haven't done everything you came here to do. Don't rest on your laurels. Go and conquer some more. I don't know. Just a thought. But I want to loop back around to this idea of the of the second coming and how that might be actual like conflict avoidance or or avoiding fearful uh, scenarios. So yeah, to go back to your earlier question, you know, I think the idea that we would anticipate the second coming is something that's happening in our lifetime. First of all, we have the scriptures to tell us that the end is nigh, right? I come quickly. We read over and over in the Doctrine and Covenants and also in Revelation a couple of times. And so you do have this idea that that it's supposed to happen anytime. And I do think in some sense that it actually does happen if we don't think of the second coming as a one-time event or or, or the end of the world as a one-time event, either or both, right? Then Then there's this possibility that opens up of when you die, that's it. That's the end. There's the second coming. Will you be in the presence of Christ when you die? Maybe that's maybe the answer is yes, right? I don't know. I mean, we're, we're taught that when we die, we go, we return to our God, and we we sort of have a judgment, right? There's like a prejudgment where we end up in spirit prison or in paradise. That's the theological basis for saying, yeah, there's a second coming there, right? And we have different answers to the question of whether God exists within or without time. And so even something like the this preliminary judgment of which you speak, or even the final judgment, could already always be happening. We've talked about time as cyclical and of things already always happening in other episodes, right? And this is something we probably, I think we will we'll return to this topic, the idea of, of, the, of the eternal return, as uh, Mircea Eliade put it in his book, The Myth of the Eternal Return, Cosmos and History. You know I like that book. Me too. It's a, it was a very insightful book. It really changed my experience of the temple, of temple worship. Absolutely. So this idea that time is, is sort of a construct and we keep returning to the fundamental ideas that moved our ancestors thousands of years ago points to the cyclical nature of our experience less than the, less so than, or excuse me, more so than the the linear aspect of time. It's more of a cyclical experience. But I think that we're trying to exercise some form of pain avoidance by, by making the second coming imminent. I think we're operating out of fear, and, and maybe there's an idea about the second coming that is more not only practical, but maybe even comforting when we just individualize it and personalize it instead of making it a global catastrophic event. So what does that look like for you, Riley? 
Well, it's pretty similar to, I think, what you described. And, and that is that, you know, my life is ordained for the Hebrew tradition is 70 to 120 years. You said 70 to 110 earlier, but <laughs> close. I was pretty close. <laughs> uh, and so if that's, if that's the, the breadth of my life, if that's the extent of it, and I have this internal understanding or doctrinal understanding of a, of a second coming or a return, as Mircea Eliade expressed it, to my eternal roots, what if what if that's it? As you as you pose that same question, what if that's it? And I'm not obviously um, negating the possibility of a literal physical return of the Savior to the earth to take on his theological um, place as a as a king. Okay, that you can have both, and you don't have to have either or. Right. You can. So it's a question of perspective, right? So, and, and perspective is really important when it comes to contemplation, right? Because while it may be that Jesus returns again in that literal sense and sits on a throne on earth, the question is, what other understanding can I have here and now that makes a difference in how I live my life here and now? Right. Assuming you're not here at the day and hour that the Savior actually does physically come back to retake his rightful position as a, you know, as a monarch. Assuming you're not here when that happens, what does the, the idea or doctrine of second coming mean to you, Christopher Hurtado? Right. And to me, the answer is, it seems clear to me that the scriptures are teaching me to live my life as though I may be present, as though I might be present at the second coming. And again, it may be that I really am when I die, whenever I die. And it may be that I'm not. Either way, though, the important thing is that I live my life as though I might be. That's what the scriptures are teaching me. That's what I read in them. And for me, a similar but possibly conflicting idea is that a lot of people read the scriptures of an imminent second coming as a way to not have to confront their own mortality. As if they're the generation that's going to be changed in a twinkling of an eye versus the generation that like 99.999% of all humanity is just going to be resurrected from the grave. Does that make sense? That never occurred to me, Riley. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, it, there, there are so many ways that we do, in fact, even if that's not one of them, and I can see how it could be, there are so many ways in which we try to avoid thinking about death. And, and we said earlier that maybe you're not actually actively avoiding, but you're also not actively seeking to remember death, which is the exercise, the spiritual exercise that we're here contemplating. But it may be that you are, and, 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 it's, and it may be that you're not aware that you're doing it. And again, that's why contemplation is all about awareness. It's bringing these things to our own awareness. What is going on in our own psyche? What is going? Do we know ourselves, right? To know ourselves is to know God as we are made in his image. So if we want to know God, we have to know ourselves. And so we have to be aware. And so putting, putting off thinking about death or avoiding it, or pretending in some sense that we're not going to die. It's not that we don't know that we're going to die. And yet, in some sense, we pretend that we're not. 
and by the way, we don't always know we're going to die. I, I you know, I can distinctly remember the day that I that I thought for the first time I'm mortal. And I did not realize before that day that I had that I must have thought I was immortal before that day because it was the distinction, right? It was the difference between what happened that day that, that what, what occurred to me. I had two automobile accidents in the same day. I was 20-something. And I got a sense. This is not a near-death experience I'm talking about, but it is the idea of it could have been, right? Either one of those accidents could have killed me. And so I got this sense because you really somehow think you're immortal when you're a young man, at least. At least I did. Did you have that experience? Absolutely. I had the Superman yeah. complex to the extreme. Right. So that day, I became aware that I must have thought I was immortal because now I knew I was mortal. And that's such... Think about what I'm saying. That's the day I grew up in some sense. So this kind of awareness is, in some sense, a spiritual maturity and therefore valuable in our spiritual progression. Yeah, and I think it's important to point out that we're not trying to denigrate or invalidate feelings of grief when when someone close to us dies. We're not we're not saying, you know, just suck it up because we're all going to die. Like you should have been aware of this a long time ago. That's that's not it at all. But I think it helps to put things into perspective if you do have a practice of of confronting this reality that death is real and it's coming and not have necessarily this deep foreboding at all times, but rather just an appreciation for life. Yes. You know, and and so rather than trying to make people feel like their grief is not valid, that's, that's not the point. What we hope to do is turn people's perspective towards life and, and how beautiful it was that they did live and really appreciate the moments you had with people. My mother called me this morning with with some sad news. And this is part of the reason why we're discussing this, because I think it resonates with both of us for some reason at this moment. But um, I thought this was an appropriate conversation for me at this time, at least. My mom called me and, and said that uh, her best friend and someone who I kind of looked to as a surrogate mother, because uh, we spent so much time with their family, had been killed in a head-on car crash this morning. And... What it caused me to do, you know, I didn't cry. I mean, not that it would have been bad to have cried. Um, I, I certainly felt sad for my mother because I know she was going through it. You know, this is her best friend. She had just talked to her a couple of days before on her birthday. Something she always remembered to do was call my mom on her birthday. Um, even if they were separated by distance and time, they were, they were always close uh, to each other. And, you know, it didn't, it didn't, cause me to, you know, break down into tears or anything, my immediate thoughts, and later on when I spoke to my brother about it as well, his immediate thoughts were the same, were to go towards a remembrance of her life. And we, he and I, as we sat on the phone talking about it, we, we spoke about the really pleasant memories we had of her. She was so sweet, one of just the nicest, sweetest people you'll ever meet, always wanted to make people feel comfortable. Um, in in the true sense of like physical comfort, she loved giving back scratches and, you know, really <laughs> relaxing people. She always had nice long nails and her back scratches were the best. I remember specifically um, staying at their, their house down in Moab, out in Castle Valley, just outside of Moab for a, a summer week. 
and my brother and I slept outside. And when I woke up in the morning, both my eyes were swollen shut. I had been bitten by um, spiders. I don't know what kind of spiders, but I had, you know, the, the, the telltale signs of spider bites on my, on my eyes, my eyelids. And so my eyes were completely swollen shut, extremely itchy and, and, you know, leaking pus and very bad situation. And she just nursed me for the next couple hours with, you know, gauze and wiping away the, the, the tears and pus from my eyes. And, and I just remember crying as, you know, I was probably nine years old or something like that. And she's holding me in her lap and uh, just kind of nursing me back to uh, to health and making me feel as comfortable as I as I could feel at that moment. I remember one other time when I went up to some Indian ruins and uh, sort of ashamed to say this, but one of the mantles of the Indian ruin, and this wasn't a a, a big one, but uh, just one of the random ones that were in the valley surrounding that area where they lived. Anyway, the mantelpiece fell off. And it almost fell on my brother's head, and I caught it in my arms. And as the sandstorm was sliding down my arms, it was just opening up gaping wounds all the way down my arms. And uh, my brother had enough time to get out of the way, and it didn't didn't kill him, thank goodness. Uh, it's probably a forty or fifty pound stone. Anyway, I get back to the to the house, and I'm just bleeding down both arms. And you know, she spent half the day, you know, nursing me back to health again. Those are the memories I have of her, and um. Maybe that's too extended of a description, but I just wanted to point to the the idea that that's how I remember her, and I don't think of you know death as this this final thing that is such a sad event. Although you know it does it does cause me a little bit of sadness that I to think I won't speak with her again. It causes me also to remember a really well lived life, and so for that I'm grateful. You know, a couple of things come to mind, Riley. If if we are led in the path of righteousness, in that right relationship with God and with our fellow man, and surely we are, for the scriptures tell us that we are, he leadeth me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Then, and that's from verse 3 of Psalm 23, then going to verse 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I imagine I don't I don't know her but I imagine that that was the case for her and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So yeah, you know it's we we're not we're not really talking about mourning and yet death also brings mourning and we very much believe in mourning with those who mourn but the conversation is not about mourning it's about being better prepared for our own death and even for the death of others because to realize we're going to die and to have that, to be present to that, it's going to better prepare us for both our own death and for the death of our loved ones. And so, of course, we already have the answer of uh, when you said something about talking with her again, we, we believe that you may actually get to talk with her again in another life. In this life, you won't. And so there is, there's a reality to mourning and, and to that loss regardless of what we believe about an afterlife, right? Because there's this life here and now, and she was someone for your mother who was close to your mother and even who, who was important in your own life. And so because of that, the idea of remembering death, of memento mori, of remembering that we're mortal, that we're going to die, is something that helps us to live better and to appreciate 
life and those we love and their lives and to spend both quantity and quality of time with those we love not just because we won't not just because that time is finite because that's only true in this life but because this life was meant for us to live joyfully we were meant to be happy not only in a, in another life not only in a life to come but in this life that's part of god's plan for us it calls to mind for me chris this again this scripture from Mosiah chapter 16, 7 and 8, where it speaks about the sting of death being swallowed up in Christ. I don't think that we that the removal of the sting of death is only because of some future hope, but also because of the present awareness that life is beautiful. Yes, exactly. So with that, unless you have anything to add, Riley. I don't, know. So with that, I would close very much aware that in some sense we're dealing with paradoxes because our life is finite and yet it's eternal and we're going to die and yet we're going to live again and we mourn and yet we rejoice in remembering and all of this is part of all of this is part of our human experience and contemplating all of it being aware of it enriches our life, both our present life and because we believe that whatever it is that we become is who we are here and in the eternities. It's all worthwhile. And this is this has been such a great conversation for me because this is something I want to remember. And so thank you, Riley, for joining me in this conversation. Riley, I know you said you had nothing to add, but there's there's a scripture that you mentioned before we started recording that I would like to ask you to read in closing. Yeah, it's from Psalm 90.12. And the reason why this is maybe the best place to end is I think it kind of sums up what we were talking about with the purpose of being aware and thinking about death. Memento mori. And it goes like this. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Amen. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. Have a great week. Bye.